The following message was recorded as part of the morning worship celebration of Lake Oconee Presbyterian Church in Eatonton, Georgia. More information about the ministries, staff, and worship offerings of Lake Oconee Presbyterian Church can be found on our website at www.lopc-pca.org. Our Father, in these next few moments as we consider what it means to be redeemed, what it means to have our worlds ordered by your love. So help me, I pray, to speak clearly, winsomely, and humbly from your word. Grant us ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts that understand, and hands that are moved in obedience to your law. All these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is my question for you. What part of your day-in, day-out life demands the most attention out of you? And let me give you a couple of examples of what I mean. It could be the busyness of work, or as many of you have pointed out to me, as you moved out to Lake Oconee to retire, retirement is much more busy than you thought it was going to be. It could also be uh, constant attention to social media. If you don't know what that is, it's okay, your grandkids do. It might even be a preoccupation with what's going on in your family, with your children, with your grandchildren. It could also be worrying about financial security. All of us are watching the news ticker almost every day to see what Congress is going to do. If they can do anything before January or before, yeah, before January 1st. You could be dwelling on a past injustice. You could be worried about a particularly close or important relationship. You could be obsessed with the 24-hour breaking news cycle that always seems to be there. Or it could just be relentless advertising wherever you turn. However you find your day structured... Time is a funny thing, isn't it? We think about time. We think about what it is to, uh, to control time or be controlled by it. Take a moment to reflect on this statement. Show me what you celebrate, and I will tell you who you are. Show me what you celebrate, and I'll tell you who you are. Our culture, like all human societies throughout the ages, have tr- has tried to deal with the problem of time. Now, everybody has a different idea about how significant chunks of time should be marked off over the calendar year. Let me give you a few uh, examples. One of them, commercial time, things like Black Friday, Cyber Monday... Memorial Day, Labor Day, all sorts of sales. Anything that the car dealers or the furniture dealers could use to try and entice us into their stores. Another one, if you're in school or your kids or grandkids are in school, you find your year dictated by academic time. School starts in the fall. It ends in the late spring. Everybody crams everything they can into the summer and then turns around and lets it start all over again. Some of us see our time dictated by federal time. 
special days such as Martin Luther King, Washington's birthday, Lincoln, Memorial Day, Independence Day, Labor Day, Columbus Day, Veterans Day, Thanksgiving. Or Hallmark time. Birthdays, anniversaries, and of course the holiest of all days, Mother's Day. And even at this time of year, it's um, interesting that we see sports time dictating our lives. College football bowls have already started, probably. They'll continue through January the 7th. Here's the thing. However we mark time, it can always seem that our priorities are shaped by whatever is going on in our calendar. And our lives are being controlled by outside forces. And we can feel like we're just along for the ride. So here's the beautiful thing about this night. As we think and ponder about Christ's advent, his coming, his incarnation, his birth, God is showing us something very specific that I think it would be good for us to think for a few minutes on. We're given a window to see how God deals with time. Now, Here's the interesting thing about time, around the time that Jesus was born. There had been a gap in hearing from God. Now, I see a lot of you out here uh, are here with families, and that's a great thing. Some families, if you go more than a couple days without hearing from each other, it's a pretty big deal. Some families, this is the one time that you actually hear from everyone. Did you realize that right around the time that Jesus was born. God's people had not heard from God in 400 years. Nothing. Not a prophecy. Not a miracle. Not a vision. Not a declaration. Nothing. Just absolute, 100% deafening silence. Well, 400 years of absolute, unequivocal, deafening silence, that is a long, long time. Many of you here today have have experienced going from periods of time without your family checking in, and you begin to worry about them, don't you? You begin to wonder what's going on. I remember when I was in high school, uh, before, um, you know, eight-year-olds were allowed to have cell phones, I had to carry with me a stack of quarters because I had to check in at appointed times so that I would be um, known to be still alive and relatively out of trouble. But in the mystery of God's plan, he waited 400 years. Now, during this time of, of apparent silence, there's some amazing things that are going on in the ancient Near East. They were coming together to create this perfect moment in time. What Paul was saying in Galatians 4, when the fullness of time had come. Traditionally, theologians have seen indications that there was a certain ripeness to the time of Jesus' birth in the historical circumstances of the day. Rome's conquests had produced the peace of Rome. So that travel was safe and easy. 
There was political um, implications as well. There was political unity built on the earlier victories of Alexander the Great, whose expansion from Greece to Egypt to India left in its wake Greek language and culture, which later made the spread of the gospel through the New Testament easier. Greek-speaking Jews lived in every city of the Roman Empire. Their religion was protected by Roman law, and that law protected Christianity for its first half century. Many Gentiles who were interested in the monotheism and morality of Judaism went to Jewish synagogues. Thus, the synagogue was the natural starting point for the church's early outreach to the Gentiles. Now, in Palestine, Jews were especially longing for their Messiah since they were politically subject to the Herods and to the Romans. All throughout the region, there were messianic rebellions that were simmering constantly and repeatedly broke out in open battle. Socially, peasants were oppressed by large landholders who used every opportunity and legal loophole to expand their properties while exploiting them. Many of those oppressors, by the way, were from the chief priestly families whose greed was well known to all. Friends, the time was ripe for Jesus' coming. But when we think about the time being right for Jesus' coming, one of the things that we have to make sure we understand is that Jesus' coming to earth was not some sort of last-minute plan B. This was a divinely appointed act of rescue, and God was preparing to enact this divine, sovereign, gracious, merciful rescue at just the right time. The emphasis that Paul is making here in Galatians 4 is that the time that had been ordained by the providence of God was seasonable and fit. Therefore, the right time for the Son of God to be revealed to the world was for God alone to judge and determine. Now, the coming of Jesus into human history was not an accidental happening in late antiquity. Not only was the incarnation the fulfillment of numerous Old Testament prophecies, but it also was the culmination of a plan devised by God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit before the world itself had ever been created. Here's the fundamental problem. The world had turned in on itself. St. Augustine would say that we are suffering the consequences of disordered love. Now, you and I see this nearly every day. There is no formulation of the faith that is talked about in the Old Testament, carried through in the New Testament through the person and work of Jesus Christ, that supports any idea of spiritual compartmentalization. It just doesn't exist. If we, can, if we go back to our opening discussion about how time works, there can be no such thing as work time, then family time, then social time, then if time is left over, religious time. This self-ordering of time, priorities, values, and loves is at the heart of what the Bible declares to be sin. We were created in perfection by a perfect God. And when our first parents, Adam and Eve, sinned, 
God had to commence a rescue. When we think about what sin is, it is simply this. It is either not doing what God has expressly commanded, or it is doing that which God has expressly forbidden. But let's be clear. God isn't sitting up in heaven as some sort of cosmic rule keeper alone. He's certainly no less than that because he is, after all, the creator. He is the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth. He does actually get to dictate what is right and wrong. But you see, God is more than that. God is a relational God. He is a covenant-making, promise-keeping God. And He created the human race to be in relationship with Him. God is not an add-on to our already hectic lives. But rather, God is the orientation, reorientation, and foundation of our lives. We can't save ourselves. No amount of charitable good deeds will do it. No amount of self-promotion or self-protection will do it. This is where the hope of the incarnation comes. This is an absolute hope brought to us by this time where God demonstrated that he is with us. In fact, that is what Jesus' name was given to be. Emmanuel, God with us. God sent his son, not just from Galilee to Jerusalem, nor just from the manger to the cross, but God sent his son all the way from heaven to earth. The full implications of what was announced to the shepherds, what Mary and Joseph experienced, what God did in his son, this can't be captured in words. God did not send a substitute or a surrogate. He sent himself. So Paul goes on and he says that God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. What does that mean? There's a beautiful picture of this. When I say I'm giddy about what's happening tomorrow, it's not what you think. The screen adaptation of the musical Les Miserables opens tomorrow. If I didn't have my family in town right now, I'd be going at midnight. To Atlanta if I had to. And if if you're not familiar with Les Miserables, uh, at least in the musical adaptation of Victor Hugo's novel, there's a beautiful picture of this idea of redemption. It comes through uh, Jean Valjean, the main character of the tale, who spent 19 years in prison. Five years because he stole a loaf of bread to feed his his sister's starving child. And then another 14 years on top of that because he tried to break out of prison. And when his time comes for his parole, Javert, the chief constable of the town, calls him up and gives him his yellow ticket of leave. Valjean says, it's because I'm free. And he says, no. Your time is up. Your parole has begun. Well, Valjean tries to go out and get meaningful work and he can't find it. Because he has this brand upon him. He is a convict. No one will hire him. 
And so finally, he finds respite in the home of a local bishop who brings him in. He feeds him. He clothes him. He gives him a bed to stay in. And night falls. And Valjean looks around and he sees silver and gold. He sees fine linen. He sees everything around him that he could sell and pawn to give himself a new life. And so what does he do? He takes and grabs everything. He takes as much as he can. And he goes and he runs into the night. Well, what happens? He gets caught. And there's this beautiful, poignant moment in the musical when the uh, constables are bringing him back to the bishop's residence. It's late in the night. And in the libretto, the, the lyrics to the song say this. Tell his reverence your story. Let us see if he's impressed. You were lodging here last night. You were the honest bishop's guest. And then out of Christian goodness, when he learned about your plight, you maintain he gave this silver. The bishop interrupts the constable and says, that is right. And he looks at Valjean, he says, but my friend, you left so early. Surely something slipped your mind. You forgot I gave these also. And he hands him two solid silver candlesticks. Would you leave the best behind? So, messieurs, you may release him. For I know this much is true. I commend you for your duty. May God's blessing go with you. Valjean is stunned. The constables exit the stage into the night. And the bishop turns to him and he says this. He looks to him and he says, I gave you your freedom. But remember this, my brother. See in this some higher plan. You must use this precious silver to become an honest man. By the witness of the martyrs, by the passion and the blood, God has raised you out of darkness. Valjean leaves under assumed new identity. He has a new name. He has money. God rescued him out of his own plight. Friends, listen. In Jesus, we have that redemption. Valjean rightly deserved imprisonment and justice. Instead, he was given grace. He was given a new identity. He was given freedom to have a new start. And that's what Paul declares is true this day for anyone who is in Christ. For in the fullness of time, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that they might receive their adoption as sons. I don't know many of you I know some of you. I don't know what your story is. I don't know who you are, who you were, who you're pretending to be right now, or what in your life you're trying to run from or recover from. And in fact, you may not know either. But this is what I can tell you. 
in the incarnation, in the birth of Jesus Christ, God has both freed you from the punishment you deserve and given you a life you could not earn. But there is a cost. It cost God his life. There is only one high priest who can save us. That is Jesus. There is only one source of life, both here on earth and in the world to come, and it is through Jesus. There is only one gift that matters to be remembered this night, and it is Jesus. What Christ purchased on the cross for those who would believe and trust in him. He did so to adopt us as sons and daughters, to bring us into a new family, to give us a new start, and to keep us safe unto the end. This is the good news of the gospel. Let us pray. And so our Father, we are helpless and powerless to save ourselves. In your grace, you sent your son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order to redeem us. You purchased our pardon. You secured and paid our ransom. And you have now declared that your children are to live lives of obedience to you, fueled only by your grace. I pray for my friends here tonight. I don't know their story, but you do. I don't know if this is the one time of year they come to church or if they are truly believers in Christ. Whatever the case may be, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would do a work here tonight. For your praise and glory, we ask it. Amen.